2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. It's in that blue Bible on page 275. 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. These are the last words. It says the last words of David. Basically, it's the last written words of David, because there are some other things he'll be recorded as saying later in the chapter. But I find it intriguing that as we read this, that some of the language in these verses actually shows up or is echoed or pictured for us when we get to 2 Peter in just a minute. I want you to notice also some sense of the context. That as he is praising God, he's praising God in his, uh, as he's striving to be faithful. He's praising God, but it's in the conflict, uh, context of verse 6, worthless men. So there's a contest going on even in these words, and you'll understand, hopefully, the connection when we get to Second Peter. So Second Samuel 23. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth in a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. But worthless men are like the thorns that are thrown away, they, for they cannot be taken in the, with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. And now we turn to Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1. I'm going to pick up down around verse 16. For those of you who are visiting, we've been doing a series through First and now Second Peter, Memories, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. We took a break last week for obvious reasons, and we're right back to Second Peter, just picking up where we left off. I'm going to focus on verse 16 through 21, but I want to begin reading in verse 12 so that we get, again, the feel, the context of what Peter's writing. So starting at verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will, soon, will, be, will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things, for... We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy, no prophecy of Scripture, 
For no prophecy has ever, was ever produced by the will of man. The men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What I read to you from 2 Samuel and what I read to you from 2 Peter is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Spirit of God, who carried along the prophets and guided the depositions of the apostles, light up our hearts and minds that we may pay attention and hold tight. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide there. So have you ever been, this has been heavy on my mind just the last couple of weeks, and it made me think back to things in the past. Have you ever been deceived or scammed? Well, I have. And I've told you this story where I lost my last $10 while I was on the bus going to work. I was working at NORAD. I was on a the metro bus and lost my last $10 to eat with for a week to a card shark of all things. I knew better than to play this guy's game, but thought I could turn the whole deal around on him, and instead he snagged me, which was his ploy all along. I hate it. I hate it the few times I've been deceived like that. And I get really, really, really angry when I see it being done to others, especially those who I feel are most vulnerable, such as when here in Oklahoma City, the casino, and I won't mention names, the casino sent $20 gift cards to the retirement village downtown Oklahoma City, where uh, my wife's aunt happened to be, and said with that gift card, oh, we'll bring a bus by so that you can spend all that money at our casino. And they did that because they knew that once they got the retirees with all that load of expendable cash hooked into the casino, they could then suck them dry, which is what their ploy was. That infuriates me. That kind of deceptiveness. Well, my friends, Peter is deeply concerned here with deception. He's concerned mainly for these believers that he's writing to because there are predators and pillagers that are finding their way into the fellowships and into the churches and they're taking horrible advantage of some. And so Peter, beginning here, starting at verse 16 of chapter 1, he is now zeroing in on them here. Now we're going to see how he does this. We're going to see this uh, a negative and then two positives. Okay, We're going to see how he does this as we cover concocted witness, concocted witness, and then on the positive side, apostolic witness and prophetic witness. And there's the three points. And so concocted witness, it really is the first statement in verse 16. Let me back up just a minute. After underlining the significance of remembering and recalling what was passed on by the, the band of spokesmen who were handpicked by Jesus, the apostles, after, the, after underlining the significance of remembering the words of the apostles and, 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 and that they had handed on to these people and they had been received in faith, that's verses 12 through 15, Peter now begins to gear up for the fight. And the scrap is going to be with concocted witnesses. Look at the very first statement in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of Jesus, etc. There were some who were stirring up substantial trouble inside the church 
who presented a concocted witness, cleverly devised myths, a concocted witness. And when you start picking up and moving through chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's interesting, again, Peter will spend most of his ink on these people, all of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3. When you jump into chapter 2, you cannot miss it. The cleverly devised myths in all their dark details. So, for example, just a quick survey through chapter 2 and 3. You'll see it in verses 2 and 3. Destructive heresies, denying the Master. They exploit you with false words. Like irrational animals blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Chapter 2, verse 12 reveling in their deceptions, chapter 2, verse 13. They entice unsteady souls, entice... Do you hear the entice? Entice, that's deceptive language. They entice unsteady souls, entice by sensual passions of the flesh, chapter 2, verse 14 and 18. Speaking loud boasts of folly, chapter 2, verse 18. Verse 19, presenting false promises... Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, scoffers who are scoffing. I like the way that sounds. Scoffers who are scoffing. And then towards the end of chapter 3, they're ignorant and unstable, twisting Paul's writings to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. You can't miss the, the cleverly devised myths and the destructiveness of it. And the result of these things this approach that they take, the result of these wordy predators is that they create divisions amongst the Christians and suspicion within the fellowship. Interesting, in chapter 2, verse 1, he calls them destructive heresies. You'll hear more about this next Sunday, both in the service and in the Sunday school. But destructive heresies, that Greek word heresy, which is where we... Yeah, the Greek word that we get heresy from actually means sectarian. They're dividers, destructive dividers. It goes further, verse 13, they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. And so they also rouse rebelliousness and they rouse insubordination. Chapter 2, verse 10 They despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. They promise you, they promise freedom, but they themselves are are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person that to that he is enslaved, 219. And then again at the end of chapter 3, ignorant and unstable. And for us to be carried away with the error of these lawless hombres is to lose our own stability, says Peter. So Peter has now begun, it gotten into the fight in earnest. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths like I'm about to tell you these guys did. So he's already begun. But I want to back up even a, a little bit, just for a moment again, for us to hear why this is so important, and it really begins in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 1, I want you to notice how Peter began this whole letter planting these believers in the goodness of God. To you who have received a faith of equal standing with us, received faith. 
right? God's grace. The goodness of God. Or chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace that come to us through the knowledge of God. The goodness of God. He's pouring this out on us. The, the one by whom we are, verse 3, granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. From whom we have been given those seven supplements. Yes, I had to do the tomato cage one more time. From whom we have been given those seven supplements and supports in verses 5 through 11. The goodness of God, how He has bestowed upon us richly all these things. These supplements, for example, that help to inoculate us from a sick world, a world where there is the corruption that is because of sinful desire. And so it's in that context of all of God's goodness, Peter now begins to take issue with these other people. Why is that? I think a phrase from St. Augustine helps us clearly. He says in his confessions, when we are averted, we are perverted. When we are averted, we are perverted. What Peter is getting ready to address, these cleverly devised myths, is aversion. It's turning us away from the goodness of God. Thus, it's perverting. Does that make sense? When we're averted, when we're turned away from this goodness of God, we become perverted. These teachings turn away from the goodness of God, and so they're perverted. But I want you to see the context of what makes them so horrible is because they strip us away from the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ and the goodness of God. Does that make sense? More on that next week. <laughs> but Peter is now earnestly alerting these Christians to the predators and zombies that long to devour them and prey on them and infect them with the deadly disease, the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. These people with this concocted witness present a despoiled, contaminated, concocted witness about Jesus. Which is the complete opposite of the apostolic witness. And so we're going back to verse 16 through verse 18. The apostolic witness. Apostolic means that which originates or comes from the apostles, right? Apostolic witness. Notice that the apostolic witness is an eye and ear witness, an eye and ear witness. Here's how Peter begins, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now why is that important? Well, for several reasons. As you may remember, or most of you probably remember, I did my doctoral thesis on Gnosticism, and so I can't get Gnosticism out of my head. I see it everywhere, by the way. And I spent a lot of time reading, not just the Da Vinci Code, but those alt-gospels, those lost manuscripts and gospels. Right? I spent a lot of time reading those. And I will tell you from experience that when one is reading the purported Gospel of Thomas or the purported Gospel of Mary or the purported Gospel of Judas. Do you remember the Gospel of Judas? Middle 2000s after the Da Vinci Code, the National Geo said, oh, a new Gospel has been found, the Gospel of Judas. We're going to publish it. It'll change the face of Christianity. And nobody remembers that it was published. The purported Gospel of Judas 
when one is reading those, it becomes quickly noticeable that there's an inauthenticity, inauthenticity within those words. The Jesus they devised just doesn't feel right. He sounds more like a Roman or a Greek or a Hindu. He sounds much less earthy, but one also quickly notices and perceives and picks up that those concocted witnesses want nothing to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only time they mention the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to say, oh, he was an evil God. And Jesus has come to bring to us now the God of love, a totally different God. This almost sounds 21st century. But anyways, so that's an evil God. So they want nothing to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they also want to have nothing to do with the Hebrew Scriptures. Very interesting. But notice that the apostolic witness, and it's already being laid out, beginning to be laid out right here in verses 16 through 18, the apostolic witness gives us eye and ear testimony. We saw... We heard. Apostolic witness embraces Jesus as the completion of the Hebrew Scriptures. The apostolic witness embraces Jesus as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the flesh. The apostolic witness embraces the earthliness of Jesus. We him eating, him drinking, him growing weary and sitting down at a well, John 4, because he's weary. His tears as he, as he wept. His anger over death at, the friend, at his friend's death, Lazarus' death, and so forth. They embrace the earthliness of Jesus. And so Peter presents his qualifications here in shorthand. It's in shorthand in verse 16 through 18. And notice he does so by bringing out two moments, specifically in verse 17 and 18. He brings out two moments, two episodes in Jesus' life that should always go together in our recollections. The two times, I'm going to ask you a question. What are the two times when the voice from heaven acknowledged Jesus as his unique, one-of-a-kind, sui generis, unrepeatable son and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What were the two times? Down at the Jordan, Mount of Transfiguration. Peter is pulling both those together here, though he'll specifically mention one. He's pulling both those scenes in. He's an eyewitness to those scenes. Here it is, verse 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven. For we were with Him on the holy mountain. We saw these things. We heard these things said. We received this. And we passed it on to you. Now, Peter is writing to folks who know Him. And who also apparently know other eye and ear witnesses who were able and are able to validate what what Peter has said. That's why Peter has stressed we. In fact, I believe the word we is used in verse 16 through the very first part of 19 like five times. He is hammering the we part. We were eyewitnesses and our eyewitness testimony has been validated. 
My friends, that's instructive in itself. We need to pay careful attention to this. Notice that Peter does not rise up flexing his own Lone Ranger spiritualist muscles. I. Notice that Peter does not stand up and prop himself up as a singular guru. I had these spiritual experiences, Oprah, and so you and all your listeners, Oprah, or whoever, it could be anybody, right, on TV, you need to follow me and buy my books so you too can be drawn into my experience. Notice Peter doesn't do that. We, 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 we. Does that make sense? It's a huge, huge point. So he depended on others giving their eye and ear witness to corroborate his testimony. And these folks to whom he is writing have enough savvy to have inquired of several and to query their accounts. And so he doesn't, therefore, notice in these verses, he doesn't have to go too deep in providing further evidence. He's already told them these things. And others have told them all these details, so he can just simply you know, fly through them very quickly, and they go, oh yeah, I remember that. Which is his point, because back in verse 12 through 15, Peter is still in the remind you mode. He's still in the stir you up by way of reminder. Now my friends, knowing that this is not a full-blown deposition as we might like, we ourselves in the 21st century may have Doubts, doubts that arise because this brief apostolic witness here in 2 Peter 1 doesn't satisfy our curiosities and suspicions. And we may have doubts that arise because, well, we're the scientifically advanced folks, 21st century, don't you know? And we are so sharp and so perceptive, perceptive we would never be duped by fake news or deep fakes. That's where there's a video and they can actually impose someone else's face and it looks like someone else has actually been saying these things. That's happened several times recently. We would never be that because we're too advanced. We would never be swayed by phony YouTube videos. We would never be hooked by GPT-3. What in the world is that, Mike? It's an artificial intelligence program that uses deep learning to produce human-like text that's being used in some of our news articles and other things today. We would never, why we're the advanced 21st century folks, we're the truly enlightened who can never be tricked. And of course, I said all of that with thick sarcasm, so it's okay, you can laugh. But the eye and ear witnesses of the first century have lots of things going for them that validate their credibility. I'll give you just one or two. First off, notice that they were a diverse band. If you just think of the twelve apostles and scratch Judas out because he killed himself and betrayed Jesus and went away, but then add Paul. If you think of the twelve apostles, they were a hugely diverse band. They were none of them. I mean, they were like in three different political parties all at the same time, right? I mean, they were totally on different sides on politics. So for example, 
you have several who were very anti-Rome. Just look at some of the names, Matthias and so forth. Those are very patriotic names that tell you the background of these people as they grew up. It'd be like another Sandelman being born next week, and we called him George Washington Sandelman. Right? So there's very patriotic names, but just don't forget there were a couple of them that were actually terroristic, like Simon the Zealot was a terrorist who had no problems pulling out a stiletto to kill a Roman soldier. Think of the Apostle Paul. Use physical violence, Saul of Tarsus, excuse me, use physical violence to promote his politics. Hauling Christians into jail, even claiming, says in Galatians, that he actually was part of murdering some. There are those, but then you've got those who are very pro-Rome. Just think about the tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector, or Levi, right? He's pro-Rome because he's collecting money for the opposing and the occupying force. And then there were a few who were middle of the roaders. Why am I bringing this up? Because even though they're diversely, uh, they're on different sides of the politics, notice what happens. They are drawn together around Jesus and they all say the same thing and they give the same witness because they saw the same stuff and heard the same words and they're all on board. Does that make sense? To me, that's a huge credibility. Huge credibility. Their testimony jived. We, when we told you these The fact that Peter references these two episodes in Jesus' life means that the folks to whom he is writing already know all the details of these stories, already know them in great detail. Because they've already heard from these witnesses and the Gospel accounts. And they know them well enough to fill in the spaces and the blanks. Finally, for the few who may still have doubts and maybe have trust issues. I get it. I'd like to encourage you with Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And you have a quotation there. It's a heady book in the sense that it's an academic book, I know. But it is a valuable book to read. And here's what Richard Bauckham says, and you've got this quotation in your sermon notes. Quote, all history like all knowledge, relies on testimony. Testimony is a unique and uniquely valuable means of access to historical reality. All history, all knowledge relies on testimony. Well, you know that that's the case. I mean, I'm reading you, uh, Ulysses S. Grant's personal memoirs, you know, and so I'm getting all this personal testimony, but there's it's a critical edition, and so there are other testimonies being, being drawn into the critical footnotes that help you to see the validity of what he's talking about. Even knowledge itself is dependent upon testimony. When you go outside and it's sunshiny, not cloudy, dark, if you didn't know better, you would think the sun literally revolves around the earth, wouldn't you? Would you? Yeah. But most of you, all of us, I hope, I think, would say, no, you know, actually, the earth revolves around the sun, but how do you know that? Because you're relying upon what? Scientific testimony, right? But it's testimony. Have you seen it happen? No. All empirical evidence of your experience is the other way around. 
Do you get my point? All knowledge does depend upon testimony. And so it's valid, their testimony, and the fact that it corroborates and that it jives and it goes together makes good sense and gives us reasons to listen and trust them. Apostolic witness. And so part of the immunization against the disease these predators and these zombies are spreading is not only the sevenfold supplements and supports, but also to hold on to the apostolic witness. And I want you to notice that the apostolic witness draws together. The apostolic witness unites. The apostolic witness binds together those who hear and believe in Jesus all around Jesus. Just look at the band of apostles. And it's the working assumption that Peter is using as he writes this letter. He's writing one letter to multiple fellowships throughout a region of vast seven-county or seven-state region, he's assuming that there's a unity there that they will listen together. It's a working assumption. The apostolic witness draws together, doesn't, doesn't slice and dice and divide and shatter. And so, my friends, the apostolic witness meets up and it matches up with the prophetic witness. And this is verses 19 through 21. The apostolic witness builds, builds on the prophetic witness. Since the prophets describe and declare the one who is to come, and the apostles describe and declare that he has come. So verse 19, and we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed. You just got to stop it. We, the we is the apostles here. We, the apostles, have the, the prophetic word more fully confirmed. It draws you back to Luke 24 at Jesus' resurrection. When He's meeting with His disciples, He says to them, remember this? He says to them, look, I spent three and a half years with you people showing you, reminding you, pointing out how Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets all speak about Me. Do you remember this episode? They did have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. A lot of that language seems to be flowing out of 2 Samuel 23 there. Well, since the concocted witnesses are in the dark, since the co concocted witnesses are spreading deep shades of gray and gloom, and for them... The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved, chapter 2, 17. Then the way to avoid their darkness and their darkened destiny, Peter says here, is to pay attention to the prophetic word as to a lamp in a dark place. Further, the prophetic witness is specifically the writings of the Hebrew prophets. That's what he goes on to say in verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So Peter's making a strong claim. Since the Hebrew prophets did not concoct their own programs and prognostications, then there's something more deeply substantial going on in their writings. You hear it in verse 21. For no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's statement 
here goes like a key in a lock, like a key in a lock, with what he wrote at the beginning of 1 Peter. There's so much that pulls these two letters together to give you the sense that he's writing to the same crew of people. And so you may remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It goes hand in lock with what? Uh, uh, hand in lock, sorry, m- mixing metaphors. It goes key in lock, sorry, hand in glove, key in lock, got it, all right. With, with what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel which he promised. Set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the Spirit carried these Hebrew writers along like waves of the sea carry a boat along. And He moved and He guided them in their words and writings so that you know that though they are human words, they are God's words to us and they are deserving us paying attention to them. Maybe you're thinking, well, how in the world can human words and God's words be the same? Well, here's the best I can give you as Christians to Christians. Just as our Lord Jesus is fully divine and fully human, so sacred Scripture is fully human and fully divine. Well, my friends, you may wonder, how in the world is He going to end this sermon? And will He ever? Yes. Now. Let me come on the negative side and then we'll hit an end on the top. Dear brothers and sisters, be leery of gurus and spiritualists who by dint of the power of their personalities assert their authority and draw you into their sect or into their ashrams or into their collectives or into their following. Be leery of them. You will find many, and I'm speaking from experience from the Jesus people movements in the 1970s and so forth, you will find many who will rise up on their own singular Lone Ranger experience and authority and demand that you come to them, that if you don't, then you're going to miss the divine or whatever. Be leery of them. Be wary of those who want to destabilize you who want to destabilize you, to run with them, so that you will go run with them into lifestyles that are packed with sensuality and sensual passions of the flesh. Be guarded around those who have new insights into Jesus. I'm putting quotation marks here. Be guarded around those who who have new insights into Jesus or who have new documents that have been discovered that present Jesus in a new light. We do not follow cleverly devised 
minutes. And so on the other side. Remember, dear friends, the eye and ear witnesses, they have not given you a concocted tale, cleverly devised myths, but they have given you valuable first-hand testimony that jives with the Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament. And it is trustworthy. And so you do well to pay attention to this testimony. You're being reasonable to trust what they wrote. You're being reasonable to trust what they wrote. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord our God, for your handpicked spokespersons, Peter, the others, who bore witness to our Lord Jesus, who bore witness to what they saw and what they heard. And that witness coincides and agrees. Lord, we pray. We thank you for that. We pray that you would continue to guard and protect us from those who present cleverly devised myths, those who seek to destabilize us, to draw us away. We pray, Lord, that as we read the Hebrew prophets, as we hear them, we would begin to see it at them as a light, a lamp shining in a dark place. Give us strength and give us hope and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen.